0: You can smell me. Uh-huh,
1: no, I can't. I'm nope. not allowed to in the protocols. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I'm not allowed to. I can't.
0: <laughs> can you smell me, though?
1: Yeah, I can, but yeah, I'm not allowed to tell you what it, how bad or good it is.
0: I'll just say I smell like cherries. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: <laughs> no, you don't.
0: <laughs> Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. This is a breakthrough, breaking news edition of When Life Gives You Parkinson's.
1: Today, we have released the fact that we have now discovered a way of diagnosing Parkinson's by a simple, non-invasive test.
0: That's Joy Milne from Scotland. She's known the world over as the woman who can smell Parkinson's. She smelled her husband's Parkinson's 12 years before his diagnosis. We first introduced Joy on the podcast in June 2019 at the World Parkinson Congress in Kyoto, Japan.
1: He, just before, he was 31, just before his 32nd birthday. And I said to him, uh, "Les, you're smelling, you're not washing enough, which didn't go down
0: well. And now, because of that nose, the diagnosis of Parkinson's may be a three-minute test. I talk with Joy and Professor Perdita Barron at the University of Manchester. She is the director of the Michael Barber Centre for Collaborative Mass Spectrometry. Joy, Perdita and Perdita's team have been working side by side, hand and nose for years now, identifying what exactly it is that Joy smells and if it can be used in a way to diagnose Parkinson's. Since
1: I've said it uh, seven years ago, there have been a lot of People who admitted, well, they didn't realize what it was, but I didn't realize
0: what it was. No, not until you walked into that room with all the people with Parkinson's. You went, yes. why do they all smell like less?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> A paper released today, just after midnight, September 7th, 2022, British summertime, says this Parkinson's breakthrough can diagnose disease with skin swabs in three minutes. Gang, we have a new way to detect Parkinson's, and it's all in the Journal of American Chemical Society. But let's talk to the folks behind it. Here's Joy and Perdita.
2: Um, Hello, my name's Perdita Barron, and I'm a professor of mass spectrometry at the University of Manchester.
1: I'm uh, Joy Milne. I uh, have hyperosmia.
0: Which means she has a super smeller.
1: I uh, smell Parkinson's and have been helping Manchester University for the past seven years to find a diagnostic
0: test. Parkinson's has been around for 200 plus years and we've never been able to objectively diagnose it until now with your test. So break this down for us, take it out of the lab and into the pub so we can all understand easily what exactly is going on here and what have you discovered?
2: Will I give that a go? Um, (laughs) What we have um, released today is some work we've been doing to try to build on our prior discoveries which is that people with parkinson's smell differently and we have found that the smell is most concentrated in a oily substance we have it you can see it on my head a bit we have it um uh all over our body actually not in the palms of our hands and the soles of our feet but everywhere else and that substance is called sebum And it's oily. So that's good. Um, And what we've done in this work is we've taken from people with Parkinson's, just using a a, a Q-tip, just using a cotton swab. We've we've swabbed them on their back. Um, And then we've taken that Q-tip and we've rubbed it on a bit of paper. We've taken the bit of paper, added a bit of solvent to it and then clipped just a little crocodile clip so that we can apply some electricity to it and we put it next to the mass spectrometer. And when we apply the electricity, the molecules that we took off people's backs are mixed now in the solvent and they spray out, Oh, we cut the paper to a tip, so it's a little, little triangular piece, and they spray out into the mass spectrometer. And what happens then is they very, very gently lose the solvent and we can weigh them. And when we do that with people with Parkinson's disease compared to people without, we see that there are some really big lipids, that's fat molecules, there are more, there's much more of them in people with Parkinson's. So we are able then to say, and in fact, there's about 600 that we see that are differently regulated and mostly upregulated in, in people with Parkinson's.
0: Upregulated is sciency for above average.
2: So we're able to use this method, which is really just spraying your sebum from a bit of paper to tell whether someone has got Parkinson's or not.
0: This is a biomarker.
2: So what we found is that there are some classes of lipids um, and these are in the acylglyceride category, triglycerides, and um, and actually larger acylglycerides that are definitely substantially upregulated. And we now pose them as something that could be used as a biomarker.
0: Can I push pause here? Uh, I want to decode what she just said. <laughs> Perdita, we'll get back to you. Essentially, there's no biomarkers for for Parkinson's right now, but high triglycerides are already biomarkers for heart disease, high cholesterol, uh, possibility of stroke, also uh, it's an acute inflammation of the pancreas. Uh, it, you know, there, there's all sorts of things that they're already using this for. So to add one more disease to the possibilities of a biomarker that already exists for other diseases, makes it likely this is the test that has the potential to massively improve the diagnosis of people with Parkinson's disease. That is amazing. What else are you excited about, Perdita? Um,
2: What we are excited about with this method is it's very similar or much more similar to what we've done before, to a method that's used in hospitals to test people for other diseases so we are getting closer to being able to do something that really could be used in
0: clinic usefully and so this was all inspired by the nose of joy milne the woman who can smell parkinson's seven years ago she stands up in a meeting and says what are you going to do about the smell of parkinson's and they're like what are you talking about
1: my knees are bending and straightening in front of Dr. Tilo Kunas in uh, the MRCP in Edinburgh and asking, why are you not using the smell of Parkinson's to diagnose it earlier?
3: I was just flabbergasted and confused and um, I, didn't, I didn't really understand what she was talking about, but I, I definitely remembered it because it was very unusual.
0: What did you do after that meeting?
3: Directly after the meeting, I didn't do anything for, for several months, essentially almost put it out of my mind, but about nine months later um, I was interacting with a cancer biologist and she was uh, working with me looking for biomarkers to write a grant for biomarkers for Parkinson's and I mentioned this lady, I didn't know her name at the time even, that she thought she could smell Parkinson's and then this uh, professor then uh, convinced me that she might not be crazy, that, uh, that some uh, cancers have an odor, and you wouldn't expect a cancer to have an odor. That maybe, maybe she had something to it. Did you think she was crazy? I didn't think she was crazy, but I thought it was an unusual question, and, and I didn't know what it meant. And you know, it's just something that I would never think was even possible.
1: He was what? <laughs> like you said, it was what's she talking about, <laughs> you know? And he asked various people in the room and nobody understood what I said. And we spoke later. Um, so yes, that's how it started. And uh, I was then introduced. And Tilo sp- spoke to Perdi and I went down to Manchester. I, I vividly remember our welcome in the station down at Manchester and we got to the university. It was wonderful.
0: Perdita, do you remember when this went from joy being a novelty to you realizing, wait, there's something here.
2: Yeah, I do, and and I was I was really skeptical when Tilo first told me that this lady had you know asked this question. I, I was skeptical, and I just thought she was just smelling older people and and associating their smell and perhaps their movement uh, with with Parkinson's disease. So I was a skeptic, but um, it was both meeting her because she's awfully convincing, <laughs> and also in that very first work that we did. Um, there was one participant who she scored as having Parkinson's, who was who had not did not have Parkinson's, but actually he came back and told the team that he had just been diagnosed. That was about nine months after Joy had smelt his T-shirt and said he had. So that was really <laughs> enough to convince me um, of Joy. What then we had to do was see if mass spectrometry could do it, see if analytical
0: science could do it, and that's been a longer journey. Do you think scientists will be more willing to listen to patients and care partners about the oddities that they're observing?
1: I hope so. Um, if they're not, as you know, <laughs> Les wrote a, a, a piece of all the early diagnostics signs and symptoms he had as a doctor. He was the consultant anaesthetist, and it is the sparks of experience within the research team in, in the PD Avengers.
0: A couple of really important points there. Sparks of experience. The sparks of experience means the things that you notice about your Parkinson's or the things that your care partner notices about your Parkinson's that may not be discussed widely in literature already. Bring it to somebody's attention. It may be something that they can track on other people or is already being noticed, but nobody's put it all together yet. Just like this. It took seven years, but this could really be a big payoff. The second point I want to make is Joy mentioned the PD Avengers and sparks of experience. You can... Look up the blog entry for that at the pdavengers.com. Joy is a PD Avenger, so I take great pride in, uh, in this research that she's been conducting for now over seven years uh, as, we, uh, as we get closer and closer to a biomarker for Parkinson's disease. You can sign up to be a PD Avenger too. Go to pdavengers.com. It's free, and together we can make a difference. Perdita, uh, the question's gonna come from the Parkinson's community, especially people with Parkinson's. Why why should I care about this? I think it's harder for people with Parkinson's,
2: except you have to take yourself back to when you first had symptoms and you weren't sure. Uh, And particularly for those um, like yourself who, who had them when they were younger, you weren't sure. Your family probably weren't sure. And your clinicians probably weren't sure either. And so our real aim now is to make a clinically relevant confirmatory diagnostic such that when people present with one or two of those early difficult symptoms, this is a cheap way of saying, "Yeah, actually, this is what you've got, or no, it isn't, which would, which would in many cases be useful. So I think that's why people with Parkinson's should care. I think it's for what's you know, it's for, it's but it's for their future selves, I suppose, or their themselves.
0: What is the potential, not just for diagnosis, but for following the progression of Parkinson's with this in, and with intervention?
2: Yeah, so we have got some very small indicators, not in in this work published today, but in 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 other studies that we can see changes that occur over a three year period. We've done a longitudinal study, and 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 we'll be publishing that fairly soon. I think where there is a greater opportunity is in clinical trials for potential medication with a high likelihood ratio groups. So groups mostly with genetic predisposition to Parkinson's. And there I think our, our method could potentially inform the trial um, people uh, about the people who, who would convert to Parkinson's versus the people who wouldn't, which would of course be useful. So I think that's where we, we may have
0: our second um, hope to, to do something good now. And so this this test that we've discovered that we're announcing today, uh, I understand that it it's extremely faster than other clinical mass spectrometry po- approaches. Like it's it's you can find out in two to three minutes.
2: We can find out in two to three minutes, um, and we can do it well. It's important for two reasons. It's important because you're not using much machine time. And machine time is what's important, actually, is what's costly. So it makes it much more cost effective to do that. It's not that it makes a huge difference to someone whether they're diagnosed within three minutes or or three weeks, but it makes the test much more cost effective, which means it's more amenable to what we were talking about before, potentially prognostic screening, but also to... Not taking up too much of the resource of any hospital, if they, if we wanted to introduce this as a confirmatory diagnostic. So at the moment in Manchester there are around about eighteen thousand people waiting to see a neurologist. We have huge waiting lists in the UK at the moment. I think this is the case in in many countries post pandemic. And if we could run a rapid test, we could we could run all of those eighteen thousand in about three weeks with our with our test, then we would be able to make some referral, or, or sorry, assist the referral process in that case. You know, most of them will not have and some of them will, It we would be able to assist it. So that's our goal, is in two years time to be able to run a trial in the Manchester area where we really can see whether this could work as a
0: confirmatory diagnostic for those people on the referral pathway. So you, you said a word that tr- sort of triggered me, the rapid test, which reminds me of COVID. Uh, and how has COVID and what we learned through that process impacted your research?
2: Okay, so a, a, a lot. I mean, in bad ways, I think it's affected people in, in many other patient groups and it's affected clinicians in many other specialty areas, because certainly in, in the UK, there was much more emphasis, rightly, but, but perhaps too much emphasis put on, on COVID. And yet, you have Parkinson's, you still have Parkinson's. Um, that's a, that's a, That's been a lesson learned. But from my perspective, I worked, um, I was seconded to the UK government to help to try to see if mass spectrometry could be used as a test for, for COVID. And, and that really taught me about making rapid tests because we needed to compete with uh, rt and it also brought me and my group much in much closer proximity to clinical research. And I think the most important thing there is that we in research labs and universities, we can develop all sorts of fancy things that look great, but actually to make something that's gonna be really useful and can be rolled out across the world or, or at least to, to any um, place that has a, a clinical biochemistry group in their hospital, then it ought to be something that could be done by a technician in that hospital who, not to be mean about the technicians, they don't want to think; they want to just do, and that and that's what happened with COVID. We had to have tests that were just reliable and could just be done by you know willing willing technicians. And in what we are trying to do now with Parkinson's is to make this test robust so that it can be performed by many different people in in
0: in, in hospital labs. How gratifying is this day compared to seven years ago when you stood with wobbly knees in front of uh, that group?
1: Uh, I can't describe it really. I feel very um, emotional about it, actually. I uh, heard he released a uh, short film uh, um, with the foreword where I discuss what happened. Les was literally on his deathbed the night before he died. For Les, as a doctor, once we had discovered this, he almost became the old Les again. He was investigative. He thought about what it meant. The night he was dying, he made me promise that I would continue and I do this research. And I have to say, it has paid off. I mean, it is wonderful what the group have done. And he would be very, very proud of how they have worked with it. It is uh, tremendous. And I promised I would do this. So I feel I have given some credence to really the suffering you went through. I mean, it, he would be so, so pleased.
0: There's other people out there that are noticing things about their, their partner's Parkinson's or their own Parkinson's, but they, they're afraid to speak up. What would you tell them?
1: I stood up at the, my first lecture was at the Edinburgh Parkinson's group and I stood up and I told the truth. I did it with Betty and Rena, two friends. Ivan and John had been Les's friends. We were all together in that Parkinson's group. The three of us got together after Les had made that list of early diagnostics and we discussed it and I stood up and I said, very honestly, very frank about what it was, the response I got from the people with Parkinson's and their carers, I mean, Betty and I were nearly in tears. We had spoken about their most hidden secrets, the things they had not been able to speak about with anybody else. Yet I had said it had happened to us. So they were able to speak to me.
0: That's great. That's, that's powerful. Uh, Perdita, how is the science community uh, embracing this different than maybe it did five years ago? I
2: think the clinical community, we've had fantastic support from. Um, we, we, we have really great collaborators and, and actually also from patients um, there. And it's been wonderful. And, and actually some of that has been because some of them have or some of their junior doctors have smelt the smell too and they're like okay right you know she was right this is something and 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 some of the other symptoms we've talked about clearly they they're really up, up close to um, scientifically has been sometimes a bit of another story partly because sebum was just not a biofluid that anyone thought to look at they really didn't think to look at it and and so we've had various difficulties in in convincing people that it's worth looking at or that looking at it is is viable but actually um we have shown now i think we've i think now we've really finished the zero to one stage of what we're doing and now the one to ten will be bigger and 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 we're we're pretty confident about it now
0: and are there other diseases that you think you'll find some linkage to sebum to so
2: we've Shown in collaboration with researchers at the University of Surrey that we can use sebum to diagnose COVID um, and and that was really great. Actually, it worked extremely well, worked almost as well as blood um, and and as well as um, swabs. So that was very good. Um, actually, saliva is really variable, and it was saliva was definitely much worse. Um, so we've done that, and in the course of that work, some of those individuals have been clinically followed, and we could distinguish those with hypertension from those who, who weren't. So that's good. Uh, Joy's got some interesting things coming with a colleague of mine who's leading on some work looking at tuberculosis, and that's not actually the disease, but the bacterium itself has a has an odor. And they are looking to see whether that odour is also caught well in sebum. I think that's the interesting thing about sebum. So a sweat is is like water. Sebum is like oil. And so it catches molecules that are kind of more oily. And odorous molecules can often be in that category. And so, yeah, so there'll hopefully be more to come on the tuberculosis story soon. I think one of the things going back to sebum and smell and it that I found really interesting and joy and I've talked about quite a lot is that we kind of knew all of this stuff so so we know when babies are born they have a load of sebum don't they in their head and you kind of see it there and and they smell delicious and then and then that smell kind of goes away and actually people stop producing so much sebum post four but when they get to about 13 like my um, teenage boys are now then they start smelling again (laughs) and they also produce a lot more sebum and, and then, actually, also when people get older, and not just people with Parkinson's disease, people do produce more sebum. It is a feature of older age and, and people smell more when they get older. And so I think this this relationship between, between progression um, and and sebum and odor has sort of been there for all of us to pick up, and, and we just happen to be the ones that, that did. Um, thanks to joy.
0: if I, If I heard you correctly, in two years, we'll have a study going. Yeah, in Manchester to, to really get this into clinic. That's, and then, that, that's, so how far before it's in use?
2: That will depend on regulatory agencies and and what they want to regulate, and that will depend on the economic benefit of doing this. So that's a
0: that's yeah, a uh, that's very political. Um, in in your, <laughs> what's best case, worst case?
2: Well, best case is that we we demonstrate that it's of economic benefit to to to. in in the case of the UK, to to make more impact into those waiting lists. I think that is actually something we we can do and we can do and we really should do. Um, I think globally it will depend on whether or not countries see the same, and that very much varies between different countries. But I think the case for using it for people who are at risk is also something that will that will happen. So people who have a genetic predisposition to knowing, I think that will, I think that will also happen. I think there there is some sure economic benefit. Um, it sounds terrible to talk about it in terms of money, but that's the way any nation that has to take on a, a, a you know has to pay for a test has to
0: think about it that way. So that's where it will go. But well, sure. But- I mean, like the economic burden for Parkinson's in the U.S. is fifty-two billion dollars a year. And the emotional burden of somebody who's trying to get diagnosed is even greater than that, uh, and can last six to ten to twelve years of a journey that we, they don't need to take. Yeah,
2: and I think there are people who are. I think there's an underdiagnosed cohort that we that probably that's just not known about. Now, Joy's been doing a lot of work with women with Parkinson's, and I think that category in particular, but but others too. So, no, I I don't need convincing, but what we will now do is really work to see whether we can make this
0: something that will address that economic burden. So in 2027, will I be able to get a prescription for this from my doctor? Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Okay, that's let, okay, that's, that's great. I, I like hope. It gives me hope. Thank you, Perdita. Thanks for all the work you're doing. And Joy, thank you and your nose and your persistence and your tenacity and your truth telling. We, uh, we all uh, owe you a debt of gratitude.
1: My pleasure.
0: Joy and Perdita remind me of this Muhammad Ali quote. Impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men who Find it easier to live in the world that they've been given than explore the power that they have to change it. Impossible is not a fact. It's opinion. Impossible is not a declaration. It's a dare. Impossible is potential. Impossible is temporary. Impossible is nothing. If you want to hear more from Joy and about her story, check out episodes from June 5th 2019 when we were at the world parkinson congress in japan and we revisited her story in october the 20th of 2019. the charities parkinson's uk and the michael j fox foundation as well as the royal society funded this research led by the university of manchester which has studied the sebum from people with and without parkinson's the work is ongoing and their trial has now recruited over 1,000 patients When Life Gives You Parkinson's is a Curious Cast podcast. Our story producer is Dila Velazquez, sound design by Greg Schott. The presenting partner is Parkinson Canada. Diagnosed with Parkinson's? You're not alone. Parkinson.ca. The Super Walk is this weekend. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks also to our promotional partners, the World Parkinson Congress 2023 in Barcelona, Spain. We're going to be there, Rebecca, me, and all of our pals from Parkinson's land, Make sure to be there with us. Go to wpc2023.org for details. Wouldn't it be great if there was a Parkinson Land? What kind of rides would that be? Michael J. Fox Foundation's <laughs> Parkinson's podcast, hosted by me, Larry Gifford, available on Apple Podcasts and MichaelJFox.org. PD Avengers, are you a PD Avenger yet? Ah, oh, come on, sign up. It's free. It's awesome. Joy's a PD Avenger, you could be one too. PDAvengers.com. Spotlight YOPD. One of the only organizations in the world with a singular focus of raising awareness of young onset Parkinson's disease. SpotlightYOPD.org. Also, please rate and review our podcast on Apple. Personal recommendations are the most effective way to grow the audience so tell somebody about this and raise awareness of Parkinson's disease along the way. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Don't worry about my voice. It's 3 in the morning. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time.